Tell me when you're ready. Give me a thumb. There we go. Let me begin with something I don't have in my notes, but I've been, uh, this is a, if somebody's interested in poetry and hymns, old hymns, I commend you to go online and acquire something called Gadsby's Hymns. 1,300 plus hymns. And I'm just going to read one that has three stanzas by one of the famous poets and hymn writers of all time, Isaac Watts, that fits what we're going to be talking about this morning. And he based it on saints in the hands of God. He based it on John 6, 39 and John 10, uh, 27 to 29. Here's Here's what Isaac Watts had to say. Firm as the earth, thy gospel stands, my Lord, my hope, my trust. If I am found in Jesus' hands, my soul can ne'er be lost. His honor is engaged to save the meanest of his sheep. All that his heavenly Father gave, his hands securely keep. Nor death, nor hell shall e'er remove his favorites from his breast. In the dear bosom of his love, they must forever rest. And it was interesting because as uh, Charles Spurgeon's grandfather was dying, a minister of the gospel who had faithfully preached for many, many years, and this is found in one of, sermon, one of uh, Spurgeon's sermons. I think it's actually in, in one that I'm going to be sharing a little bit from this morning. He talks about his grandfather's death and the, the months and a month or so before he died and how he spent time with him. And he recalled this Isaac Watts, uh, the first two lines of this Isaac Watts hymn. And then he said, but I like, and I'll have to go to it, I like, I like the other one better. He said, firm as the earth? No, it's firmer than that. And so he said, I like the one that Isaac Watts wrote later, which begins, firm as the, wait, I, wrote, I read the wrong one. Wait a minute, let me find it. Oh, here it is. In the third stanza of another Isaac Watts hymn, he wrote this. Firm as his throne, his promise stands, and he can well secure what I've committed to his hands till the decisive hour. He said, the earth may pass away. His throne will never pass away. And that's where we are. This morning, we're examining the last petal on this tulip. But I have no doubt, for students of the Word, that we will be continually examining and exploring and being amazed by its amazing beauty, its wonderful symmetry, and the brilliance of the truths it represents until we see Jesus clearly face to face. And Many of our questions that were unanswered here will then be answered. And I also believe we'll need to constantly examine these truths just like a master gardener, and I'm not one, but a master gardener examines any flower in her garden to make sure the bugs don't get in and to make sure that invasive species in the form of the contributions of our natural mind don't infest it with blight. Right now, I know that the best natural pest control we can have is a diligent pursuit of the means of grace, flooded every day with the water of humility, which I need more than you do. 
It's already been pointed out this morning. This fifth point, the fifth petal, been called, and you can see the various labels it has borne, and I will probably stick with a combination of the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints. At least most of the labels, and I put them in your notes, start with the letter P, so that helps, but then I hope you have come to understand, as we've talked about this, this subject in the last few weeks, that it's not the label or the descriptive that is the most important. I, we've even made, hopefully, a little bit of light of the labels and descriptives. But the truth from God's word must stand preeminent in our consideration of these doctrines of God's grace that saves from beginning to end. More than any of the other points I've taught, I have to tell you this one, and I can't explain why, maybe I have some beginning of an understanding why, but more than any of the, of the points I've taught, this one has presented me with the biggest challenge. Not because the truth of God's persevering and preserving and forever grace lacks support in Scripture. In fact, as I appreciate it, this fifth point, this fifth great truth about God's salvation has more support than any of the others in Scripture. Also, this great truth is absolutely compelled by a correct understanding of the first four points. As Dr. Boyce wrote in the Doctrines of Grace, he wrote, perseverance is implied in each of the other doctrines we have studied and is a logical consequence of salvation being the work of an eternally loving and utterly immutable, immutable God. In my words, God is really God. And as Paul wrote, he has chosen us from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and to be adopted as his sons and daughters according to the purposes of his own will, redeemed us, forgiven us, accepted us as being in, in his own dear son. How could we possibly believe that he will not preserve us as part of, and I'm quoting from Ephesians 1.10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. I'm convinced, and I believe you should be as well. So why do we even need to go further? In fact, as I said before we went on the tape, some people who aren't here today say, why do we need to even discuss this? It's obvious from the first four points. And so the answer to that is that we might be like the Bereans. As Paul, and do what Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. To rightly handle the word of truth as to this particular truth about God's persevering and preserving grace, we have to dispel some misunderstandings, I think, that have crept in. Um, Sometimes the use of shorthand labels, such as once saved, always saved, or eternal security, causes misunderstanding. And it's not that there's anything wrong with those statements properly understood. Both of them, properly understood, express truth. But it, as in all of God's word, they can be distorted and twisted in ways that are dangerous and dishonoring to all of God's word. And more often than misunderstandings caused by labels... There are misunderstandings caused by our natural 
rather than spiritual mindsets, particularly when we look at the seeming paradox, and I say seeming paradox, of human responsibility in God's sovereignty. We're going to first look at three shocking that are not so shocking news flashes. And then we're going to look at God's word and hopefully see that it, the word makes clear that God's elect will persevere and that God will preserve his elect against all enemies to their ultimate glorification, to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, as I've already expressed, but I need to express it more, I can't do this. I can't un pack this, these great truths in a way that will stick and be compelling to us and convince anyone. Only your spirit can do that. Lord, we need your spirit to teach us. Lord, whatever feeble words that I've prepared to say, may, may they not get in the way of what your Holy Spirit wants to do, to convince us of this glorious truth and cause it to cause us to break out in worship spontaneously as you work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. The first newsflash is, and I'm sure this is a surprise to all of you, there are actually false professors attending churches. Hmm. Now, if you didn't know this truth, I'd be shocked, but when it comes to rightly handling the word of truth as to the perseverance of the saints, we need to keep this in mind. Jesus, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, made it clear in a simple oral con that a simple oral confession of Jesus as Lord does not always evidence true salvation. It's recorded in Matthew 7:21, near the end of the sermon, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what, what, does, what does God's will in that context mean? Those chosen ones who were called and therefore have believed in God's provision for their salvation, the sacrifice of his dear son at Calvary, those are the ones who do God's will. They are then in Christ who perfectly has carried out every detail of God's will. Many other passages of scripture say the same thing. Why is this important and why did Jesus even say that? Because when we're discussing the guaranteed perseverance and preservation of the saints, we must understand this great truth does not apply to false professors. Just because someone has made a decision or signed a card or talked to the pastor or joined, or joined a church or even been baptized in water. I hate to say it. None of those things exempt someone from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, truly believing that in their hearts. All of those activities might be and should be part of a person's conversion process, but none of those activities results in eternal life unless eternal life has been generated in that person by the Holy Spirit. Some years ago, it became popular to use the term, maybe some of you remember it, 
fruit inspectors to describe those who thought of themselves as qualified certifiers of those who profess to be part of the kingdom of God. And I don't encourage any of you to take up that vocation. Frankly, I don't know of any real license or certificate for such an official position. Of course, people are known by their fruit, but be careful about making those judgments. Proper fruit inspection, humbly accomplished, is a long-term and iffy occupation. Spurgeon preached in this message that I mentioned to you earlier, Enduring to the End, which, go online and read that sermon. I started just read it for today because it, it put things in proper perspective and it scared me. I'll, I'll tell you that. But at the beginning of his sermon, Spurgeon preached this. George Whitfield was asked what he thought of a certain person's character. I've never lived with him, was his very proper answer. If we take the run of a man's life, say, for 10, 20, or 30 years, and if by carefully watching we see that he brings forth the fruits of grace through the Holy Spirit, our conclusion may be drawn very safely. What he was saying was, don't be so quick to judge people and their salvation. There may be times, there may be times, when we're called upon to evaluate someone else's profession of faith. Let me just interject this. I, it just dawned on me here. I, I've, it, it troubles me, frankly. It is fine for us to be praying for our loved ones if we don't see any evidences of grace. Or maybe they haven't clearly declared their faith in a way that's, that satisfies our criteria. That's, I get troubled, though, when I hear people say, well, my relative, whoever it might be, you know, they're not a believer. And, but when I start asking, well, but they do this, they do that, and they do the other. Don't be so quick. That's all I, I have to say. It's not in my notes. That was free. Most of the time, this evaluation is not our job. It's not our duty. It's not our responsibility. If this does become something we must do, we must do so with great care and humility because only God can see the heart. God knows we do not. Before we see, on the other side of this is, we see a one-time professor of Christianity who has turned and said, I don't believe anymore. Turned to apostasy. And before we conclude that this great doctrine of persevering grace is not true, consider the fact that not every professor is genuine. And do not, don't reach a premature conclusion about that person either. Because God may still be at work. God is really God. And as someone prayed, I think it was Frank this morning, uh, God can turn people that we say, how in the world would that person ever believe it? God can turn them. He can turn them because he has that power. That's who God is. He's really God. So don't give up on people. I think this quote is in your notes from Doctrines of Grace. We live in a day when many claim to be Christians but are destitute of any true knowledge of the faith and any genuine Christian experience or character. Others know a great deal about religion and may be able to pass even the strictest examination for church membership, but knowledge and membership is no guarantee that the person is actually saved. None who are in any of these categories of religious profession can assume 
that the doctrine of perseverance applies to them. We are able to stand firm only because God perseveres with us. But it is also true that we must stand firm. In fact, the final perseverance of believers is the only ultimate proof that we've been chosen by God and truly have been born again. This bothers a lot of people, but Scripture clearly teaches human responsibility and the grace that saves, which is all of God. This paradox between God's sovereign work and human responsibility is something that our minds will struggle with. Anybody have a struggle with that from time to time? Our minds will struggle with that. But the truth of God's revelation of his salvation, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, God. That all those who are God's elect through many dangers, trials, and storms will endure to the end. Scripture warns us that if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. That's Romans 8.13. But the same Scripture promises us that it is the Spirit dwelling in us. He will give life to our mortal bodies. Romans 8.11. There is work and striving involved in what we are called to do in this pursuit of holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 instructs us, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Then the very next verse tells us that we must see to it that we do not fail to obtain the grace of God and for us to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Now that sounds like work for us to do, right? Many other passages of Scripture tell us that our persistence in sin will result in failure to inherit the kingdom of God or will result in Christ Jesus denying the one who denies him. And I put several Scriptures there that bear this truth out. Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, Ephesians 5, 2 Timothy 2.11. So what does all this mean? It means, and someone came up last week and this, I'm glad I never, I didn't really come out and say this. And I'm glad God revealed this to someone who's here this morning. Faith must precede holiness. Faith must precede holiness. And that faith is a gift of God. It also means that increasing evidences of our personal holiness will definitely follow God-given faith. False profession of a belief in Christ for salvation does not result in life. False profession ultimately leads to death. And we will see there may be some fear and trembling, fear and trembling involved for God's children. And that's a good thing. Fear and trembling, that's a good thing. Hang in there. Hopefully you'll see that by the end of the, this morning. The second news flash is, and I know none of us knew this, perseverance does not mean Christians do not fall into sin. We will. I did this morning already by tweaking Peter back there. I know none of you are shocked by this truth. Do we need to count the examples? You can look at the great chapter that contains the Faith Hall of Fame. It, it, it's funny, that Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, it's really interesting. I think I put a list in your notes. 
we can easily see when we look behind what is said about their faith, we can easily see that most of the great heroes of their faith were obvious victims of sin. If we know much at all specific about their lives, we know they sinned flagrantly and grievously at times. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied about his wife Sarah to the Pharaoh in Egypt. Sarah laughed in unbelief. Isaac was a man pleaser and loved his lentils more than God's preferences. Jacob was a deceiver. Joseph was a brash young teenage braggart with obviously a condescending attitude toward his brothers. Moses had an awful temper, was a murderer. And then even after God used him mightily, he disobeyed in a way that kept him from entering the promised land. Rahab was a prostitute. The list in Hebrews 11.32 lists people who all had obvious sin in their lives. For one of them, I'm not going to go through each of them, but David committed adultery and then murdered to cover it up. And this human pattern did not end with the Old Testament. We could name many of the New Testament saints, including the apostles, and see that they were stained by sin. And this was despite the new covenant and God's indwelling Holy Spirit giving them a new nature and giving us a new nature. And despite the truth that sin no longer has control over these new creations. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints does not mean that Christians will never fail or fall into sin but that they will never fully and finally fall away from God. John MacArthur, in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, What is Authentic Faith, wrote, even if they fall into grievous sin or continue to sin for a time, they will never abandon the faith forever. True believers will persevere. Professing Christians who turn against the Lord only prove that they were never truly saved. The final news flash is that perseverance provides no exemption, don't you wish it did, from dangers, temptations, or trials. In fact, perseverance guarantees those things will occur. And I'm not saying that just based on my personal experience, although I could. I'm saying that based on God's word. I hate to break this news to you, This great doctrinal truth does not exempt us from danger, temptation, or trial. We can be assured by God's word that we will encounter all of the above. And I look around and I see people I know well who can testify to this. Great, this truth. Not a great truth. It is what it is. It is what God ordained it to be. Sometimes we don't know why. 1 Peter 5.10, and I'm going to spend some time trying to unpack this little verse of Scripture. Peter wrote, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, at first blush, if you just take that little verse out out of context, it doesn't seem too severe in its promise of danger, temptation, and trial to those who have been called, right? Doesn't look too bad. Suffered a little while. But that assessment needs to be informed first by eternity. Little while in light of eternity. And we also need to be informed by the rest of the story. So let's rehearse the rest of the story. 
If you look back to chapter 1, verse 1 of Peter's first letter, you will see that it was written to elect exiles. By the way, we are just like they were. What he was saying, he wasn't, a lot of people have taken that scripture, I think, incorrectly to mean, oh, he was talking about the dispersed Jewish community. No, who had accepted Christ. That's not what he was talking about. He was saying, he was speaking, because he was primarily speaking to Gentiles. And he was writing to the believers who had been scattered. And a lot of them were Gentiles. Elect exiles. We are just like they were, strangers in this world system. I know we don't like to think of ourselves that way, but we need to because it's the truth. We're strangers. Anybody figured that out on your own, that we kind of are strangers if we are in Christ in this world system? Do you run into being a stranger from time to time? An alien? Alien to some of the people? We don't like that. I want to get along. But it's the truth. And it's clear from the rest of this letter that their suffering would include persecution for their faith, malicious slander, spiritual assaults from that old serpent, Satan. I listed the passages in this letter that spell this out. I won't read them all. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, 2, 4, 2, 11 and 12, 2, 19 and 20, 3, 14 through 16, chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and chapter 5, verse 9. And you, but if you read the whole letter, it's full of it. He's speaking to people who are experiencing every conceivable kind of temptation, trial, and suffering. The whole letter is written to warn and encourage, and the obvious context of the letter is suffering. They are even encouraged to rejoice in suffering because they share in Christ's suffering in verse 13 in chapter 4. Peter obviously got his understanding of suffering from the very elect Son of God who he had walked with for about three years. Think back with me. Peter must have been somewhat puzzled. I mean, they still didn't understand Jesus even up to the last. You know that. Peter must have been somewhat puzzled when he personally was sitting in the room with Jesus and Jesus uttered the words that are recorded in John chapters 14 through 16 if you read all of those chapters. But in part of it, at John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the place of those 12, and Peter particularly, because he wrote this letter that we're looking at. How do you think that struck them? You think they liked that news? I, I think they were saying, oh, he's, that's hyperbolic. You know, he, he's overstating it. And then in the next chapter, Jesus still speaking in John. He tells Peter and the other apostles, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming that when whoever kills you, who, when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Chapter 16, verse 2. And then his final words to them in chapter 16, verse 33, before he began praying for them in the high priestly prayer. He repeated to them the reason why he was warning them. And then he warned them again. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. 
but take heart. I've overcome the world. And again, in reading verse 1 Peter 5.10 in context, we have to pay attention to the two verses that come before verse 10. Clearly, when you read those verses, you see that Satan is our enemy, the one who prowls around like a lion, verse 8, the one we are to resist firm in our faith, verse 9. But how can we effectively resist? Peter had learned it was in Christ he could resist, not in his own strength. He learned that lesson the hard way from his personal experience. You remember the account in the Gospels when Peter boasted that he would never deny Christ. Never. Oh, Lord, never. Jesus told him, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. How many know what sifting wheat looks like? Throw it up in the breeze, the shaft blows away, the grains fall. Just a breeze, just a little puff, Peter, and you're over. And it was, Satan did just that. He blew on Peter and Peter fell, but not fully and not finally. Why? I mean, he denied Christ. Why didn't he full, fully and finally fail? Because Jesus did what he said he would do in verse 32. But Simon, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, not if you have turned again, when you have turned again. When you have turned again. Peter kept on boasting. But his boasting didn't prevent his fall into the sin of denying the Lord of glory. But God the Son told Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What do you think Peter was doing in 1 Peter? He was strengthening his brothers. That's what he was doing. Peter was doing that for them. And the Holy Spirit inspired word through Peter, I trust, is doing that this morning for you and me. Strengthening us against the temptations and trials that will come. What did Peter tell them and us? He told them and is telling us, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a promise. And it belongs to us, those God has called. I love the narrative that Pastor Boyce put into Peter's mouth in writing the doctrines of grace to describe what he believes Peter would say to us. If Peter was explaining his own experience, he writes that Peter would say something like this. When Jesus told me he had prayed for me so that my faith would not fail, he was telling me that I could not stand against Satan alone. And neither can you. Satan is much too powerful for us. So do not make the mistake I made assuming that because I loved Jesus, I could never deny him. Satan can bend us any way he wishes, but if we are joined to Jesus, we will find that he is able to keep us from falling, or if he allows us to fall, he's able to keep us from falling the whole way and will forgive us, bring us back to himself, and give us useful work to do. We will be attacked. Count on it. You will be attacked. Count on it. But God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us through all the trials, temptations, or other modes of suffering that come our way, all for the purpose of showing to us and showing to the world and to the worlds to come his own glory that no man may boast.
this guarantee of trouble was also Paul's experience. You can see this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9, and 14 and 17. And Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light momentary affliction. Again, in light of what? Eternity. Paul was writing from his experience and from the experience that he expected for those he was writing to, including us. And then we don't need to scratch our heads very long to see the same expectation in a passage of Scripture we've been through in many ways in every, I think, every petal of the, of the tulip. Uh, in Romans 8, one of the most encouraging words we could ever read, culminating in verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, sure, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And one writer, I don't have him quoted here, said, that's not an exhaustive list. That's an exemplary list. But we have to ask ourselves why, in the middle of all these wonderful promises of God's plan of salvation in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit would inject no less than 17 potential obstacles to salvation and tells us that none of them can successfully separate us those who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, God's elect children, none of those obstacles can separate us from God's eternal love. Paul is convinced, and by the Holy Spirit wrote these words to convince us that none of the, these obstacles could overcome God's eternal purposes for us who are in Christ. Do you think sovereign God knew that these potential obstacles might come our way? I firmly believe these promises were written because they would come our way. And God wanted us to know something about his eternal love. As, John, as Jesus said and recorded in John 10, beginning with verse 27, My sheep know my voice. I know them. They will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Why would Jesus say that? <laughs> to look behind that. The sheep are obviously in danger. They're in some danger. Jesus is saying that. There's an apparent threat that they will be snatched. I know some of us have felt snatched from time to time. 
But in response, Jesus tells us in three ways that this snatching will not happen. First, he has given them eternal life, not potentially eternal life. Second, they will never perish. Never is never. God is really God. And finally, there are two hands holding them. Two hands of this omnipotent trinity. The Son's and the Father's hands are holding them. Picture a small child walking along the edge of a cliff. Thought of this picture came into my mind. I remember some trails up in in the Colorado Rockies where a little narrow trail, a lot of stumbling stones and tree roots and stuff along the way with a cliff. And I stupidly went along some of those on a bicycle, which was not very smart. But picture a small child walking along the edge of such a cliff, holding her father's hand. Something distracts the child, and she fails to see a rock or a root of stumbling in the path. And as she trips, there's obviously the clear and present danger that she will loosen her grip on her father's hands. When somebody gets surprised, that would be a clear and obvious possibility. Disaster looms but for one thing. The father's grip tightly holds and bears her up, holding all the child's weight until she can regain her footing. That's God the Father only. There are two hands, and they're omnipotent hands. We see in John 10, two hands holding that child. I love Bob Coughlin's song, O Wondrous Love. O Wondrous Love that will not let me go. I'll cling to you with all my strength and soul. Yet if my hold should ever fail, this wondrous love will never let me go. Yes, forewarned is forearmed. We have been both forewarned and forearmed by God's gracious, tender mercies informing us that we will face trouble, temptation, and suffering. But along with each of these clear warnings, we are given given assurances and promises that two omnipotent hands are holding us. What more does the word say? We could go on, and I'm going to take extra time this morning because it's my last uh, time up here on this course. A little bit of extra time. I confess I found it difficult to decide which of all the additional scriptural foundations for this doctrinal truth to share. So if I neglect one that is your favorite or one that you think needs to be explored that has not been explored, share that with Evan this week and let him explore it with you. But I have no doubt, and I have no doubt he'd do a better job of it than I will. Let me begin with two passages in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. I want to look at them back to back. They're separated by more than a chapter. Philippians 1.6 and Philippians 2.12 and 13. First, keep in mind that those being addressed in chapter 1 and chapter 2 are the same people. So we do no violence to Scripture by reading them together. Paul wrote, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then verse chapter 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see, do you see that paradox coming together here? Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. They're married right there. The first verse, chapter 1, verse 6, reinforces what we know from Romans 8. God finishes what he starts. God, being really God, makes a plan and then executes the plan he makes. God's purpose for his elect is to make them the perfect image of his own dear son, and he will not leave this work unfinished. Look where the emphasis is in chapter 1, verse 6. Dr. Spruill writes it this way. He says, note that Paul puts the stress on God, not on man, when he says that he who began a good work in you will complete it. What God begins, he finishes. His work is not left dangling like some sublime, unfinished symphony. Christ is called both the author and finisher of our redemption. Now, you may ask, but what does chapter 2 of Philippians verses 12 and 13 contribute to an understanding of the perseverance and preservation of the saints of God? My answer is that we are involved in the work. And that our involvement is with fear and trembling. I listened to Pastor Piper's exposition of two-hour exposition of See, I don't have enough time. Perseverance and preservation of the saints. And he, he spent a lot of time on this fear and trembling element. We should never take this doctrine and turn it into a license to avoid all the imperatives that God has set before us to do as his beloved children. Our fear and trembling should be like those of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, pronouncing this... He had pronounced six woes on Israel in the chapters before. He pronounces the seventh woe on himself in verse 5 when he saw God on his throne. He said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah's guilt, if you just keep reading, was then taken away by God's provision of cleansing by fire. Took a coal off the altar of sacrifice. And touched his lips. And then God called for someone to go for him. And Isaiah immediately volunteered. For us, as it was for Isaiah, the results are God's to accomplish. Using us as instruments. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. We're still to be about the Father's business. Being about the Father's business proves we are His. It doesn't merit that designation of His children. It proves we are His children. But not in our own strength. Only in his strength. Here are some thoughts to explain this further, this paradox of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. In our recommended resource, Proof, the authors first quote Douglas Wilson, who said, works, I love this statement, works is a barren mother. She will never have any children, much less gracious children. Grace is fruitful. Her children are many, and they all work hard. I love that statement. 
And after that, Montgomery and Jones write this compelling summary of the truth. They write, God's grace isn't just his pardon for your sin. It's his power at work in your powerless life. And that's why grace isn't opposed to working out our salvation. Grace is opposed to working for our salvation. Grace is opposed, perseverance isn't about performance that earns God's favor. It's about putting in effort to bring to fulfillment what God has already accomplished and guaranteed. And our effort is sourced in the power of the Holy Spirit and motivated by the desire, the will that God provides. This is truly free will. Will that has been freed to do what God is doing in us. Calvin said it almost 500 years ago, holiness is not a merit by which we can attain communion with God, but a gift of Christ which enables us to cling to him and follow him. The Old Testament is full of God's promises that his chosen ones will persevere. That he will preserve them for himself. Representative of those promises is Jeremiah 32, 40, which has been described as the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28. Jeremiah wrote, I will make with them, those chosen ones he brings back to the land, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And that promise is repeated over and over again in the New Testament, in many passages of Scripture that we've read this morning. And again, the promise appeared. And I'm going to read these because I think it's good for us to read Scripture. So bear with me as I read these. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the Lord, God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He's working in us to do what's pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Jude, the great doxology in Jude verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, please don't get the idea that this is like some really, really good flu vaccination, one that happens once and never loses its potency. I wish they had such a vaccination. I'd love it because I refuse to take the flu vaccine, but that's me. This is the ongoing, ever, it's not a one-time thing. That's why you can get a misimpression by some statement like once saved, always saved. Okay, well, that's real trite. It, you know, it's just four words, great. 
Once saved, always saved. Don't get the idea that it's like that. It's not something that happened in the past, okay, that's just over with. This is the ongoing, ever-fruitful work of God, the Holy Spirit, that will continue its process of rehabilitation unfailingly throughout our lives here on earth. We have a great physician, a chief, and this is, I made this term up, it probably makes no sense, but I made it up, I might as well use it. Chief Rehabilitation Master, who will never leave us or forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5. It is the Lord who is our helper, so we will never fear. Hebrews 13, 6. But in the meantime, for the in-between time in which we all live, down here in this messy, everyday existence, we are to make sure that we take care. We are to take care with a fear and trembling informed by God's awesome, available presence. And if we don't routinely bask in his presence, in prayer, and in his word, are we taking care? We are to take care that we persevere, knowing it is God, the creation God of the universe, who provides the power and the will that we so desperately lack. I'm going to close first with some thoughts from Pastor Spurgeon's message, and I had to fit this in some way, so just bear with me. This is a great message, and it it, it scared me, actually, when I read it. Enduring to the end. And he believed these doctrines deeply, so don't get a misimpression. But as he closed his sermon, the last point in his sermon combined an exhortation about taking care with a sure knowledge of the source of the success of that effort. And then with some thoughts, I want to then share some thoughts from our recommended resource, the book Proof. First, Pastor Spurgeon from his final point, and his final point was that perseverance should be the great care of every Christian. He said, oh, beloved, I conjure you by the love of God and by the love of your own souls. Be faithful unto death. Have you difficulties? You must conquer them. Hannibal crossed the Alps for his heart was full of fury against Rome. And you must cross the Alps of difficulty for I trust your heart is full of hatred of sin. Do you get the fear and trembling? Do we hate sin like that so that that's our reaction? Pray that your foot slip not. Let your prayer be not against death, but against sin. For your own sake, for the church's sake, for the name of Christ's sake, I pray you do this. But you cannot persevere except by much watchfulness in the closet, the prayer closet. Much carefulness over every action. Much dependence upon the strong hand of the Holy Spirit who alone can make you stand. A simple God-gifted faith brings the soul to Christ. Christ keeps the faith alive. That faith enables the believer to persevere, and so he enters heaven. May that be your lot and mind for Christ's sake. And then he prayed. One of the authors of Proof, Timmy, you, you may have read the book, and so I suspect even if you have, this will not be old to you. Timothy Paul Jones shared several times in our recommended resource about his father's struggles with sin, his deliverance from the addiction to alcohol, his life as a husband, a father, a deacon, a teacher, and a pastor. 
And after years of faithful service in a small church in Arkansas, his dad was diagnosed with lung cancer that had spread to his brain. His father was changed through disease from a man who devoured many books a week and his hunger to learn reminds me, when I read about it, it reminds me of my father who the last time I visited him, he was sitting in a chair and he had books stacked up this high, both sides, that he devoured. His father was changed through disease from a man who devoured many books a week and his hunger to learn to someone, as uh, Timothy Jones wrote, incapable of assessing whether his newspaper was right side up. And both Nancy and I have seen changes like this in those we love most. <clears throat> if you read proof, you'll remember his recounting of a trip home with his nine-year-old daughter, Skylar. She asked her father the question, Daddy, what if Grandpa forgets about Jesus before he dies? Where will he go? Schuyler understood that explicit faith in Jesus was essential for salvation. And it took Timothy, he writes, some time to process her question in the dark, driving down the highway. But his answer is a profound simple expression of the truth of this wonderful doctrine of God's gracious work in causing us to persevere, to preserve us. He finally answered, Skylar, what matters most is not whether Grandpa remembers Jesus, but whether Jesus remembers him. God turned Grandpa's heart to trust him many years ago, and Jesus will never forget him. No matter what, Jesus never forgets. That's a simple way to express this truth. But it's profound. I would have to add to that, praise God, he never forgets. Jesus, the omniscient God and Father and Holy Spirit never forget. As a result, we who are called by him can have the assurance of that second verse of, oh, wondrous love. Oh, wondrous love that's come to dwell in me. Lord, who am I that I should come to know? Your tender voice assuring me this wondrous love will never let me go. Heavenly Father, please impress these truths of your amazing grace on our hearts in such a way that we never stray from them because our human intellect, our natural bent, our natural mindset cries out against the thought that we had nothing to do with it. It was all of you. And may we never use that, Lord. In fact, I know you will never let those who are in Christ forget <laughs> that we must do what you call us to do. And we must do it quickly and voluntarily as Isaiah did when you touched him and removed his guilt and he knew it had happened. Here am I, Lord, send me. Whatever task you have for me, Lord, I want to do it.
Because it's you who puts the will and the desire. And Lord, may we approach this truth with fear and trembling. And may we not hesitate in our arrogance to examine our hearts. May I not, in my arrogance, examine my heart continually. Lord, who am I? And Lord, why? Help me. Help me. I can't. I can't do this thing you've called me to do. Because that's the truth. I want to be able to admit it routinely. So that I can rest in your strength. Because it's only then that I can have the peace that you promised. I thank you for these truths, Lord, in Jesus' name.